garden walls and the stars begin to flicker in the sky through the mist of a memory you wander back to me breathing my name with a Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who plays Leslie Berkowitz in the sitcom One Day at a Time, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm fine, and that's Dr. Leslie Berkowitz to you. I didn't go to medical school pretend for you not to call me doctor. You Leslie didn't Berkowitz. go to TV medical school for eight years for me not to call you Dr. Leslie Berkowitz. That's indeed. right, my friend. That is correct. Yeah. So we are recording this episode in May right now, and uh, it's going to be released a little bit later than that. Um, but as we're recording right now, uh, we are still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and all production has stopped on most things, right? So one day at a time, no longer shooting right now. It is no longer shooting. Nothing at Sony, as far as I know, is shooting. Uh, when you were shooting, I mean, you you had gotten a bunch of episodes in the can, as far as, far as I understand. Like I, I, you were telling me stories about what it was like to be Leslie Berkowitz and uh, how it was like. It's a very intense shooting schedule, right? It, whenever you do a sitcom, it's very intense because you only have five days to go from when you first see the script to when you get a finished product in front of a live audience, basically. So yeah. that's incredibly intense. If you do single camera. It's a whole different thing because you get pages. You only have to shoot little bits each morning. Uh, and when you do a play, of course, on Broadway, you, you, you have a 10-week rehearsal period. So it's completely different. Yeah, and you recently met a friend of the podcast as well who's like in the opera, who has like a very different schedule from even that, what you just described, right? Yes, Stacy Ta Tappan, she's a big fan of yours, David. She's a fan of the podcast, and she was there at the shooting when we shot some of the stories live at the White Fire Theater when you were there. She was working at the opera, and she always invites me to see her in the shows. They have a completely different world because it's so difficult doing opera, I guess. Uh, they learn their parts years in advance. Uh, they get called up to do the part. They only perform something like once every three days because it's so strenuous. And then they drink like fish the rest of the time. <laughs> of course, maybe we do that too. I don't know. So uh, it sounds like depending on what part of show business you work in, it's a, a very different routine that you have, a, a different lifestyle. What are some of the lifestyle characteristics you've developed over the years, Stephen? Oh, gosh, let's see. Well, I've developed a number of showbiz traditions over the years, David. Um, and they're important because the purpose of a tradition is to make a walk through hell seem normal. I learned about tradition when we were children. For the first day of school, Mom always bought my brother and me new white shirts, new blue jeans, and new black Sunday shoes. We always walked to school that first day. Mom said this would make a good impression on the teachers that we weren't spoiled and that we weren't what Mom termed rough boys. I'm not sure if we made a good impression. I do know it was hard to run in hard-sold Sunday shoes when the rough boys started throwing rocks at us. I kept the tradition of creating traditions when I became an actor. I tried to get to the theater at the same time before every show. 
I always stare at myself in the mirror before I put on my makeup saying over and over again, this is what you wanted to do. This is what you wanted to do. Maybe the strangest tradition I have is wearing the same underwear before every show. Not the same pair. My bar for personal hygiene is too high for that. But the same type of underwear. Currently in my bottom drawer, I have five pairs of underwear that are better than any underwear I've ever owned. When I have to get up early, say 4.30 for a 6 a.m. call, I don't even have to turn on the lights. I just roll out of bed, open the bottom drawer a few inches, and pull something folded on the far left side. That's where I keep the performance underwear. Without seeing a thing, I know that no matter how long of a shoot I have that day, my loins will be properly girded. After a lifetime of wearing underwear, I could say without reservation that these briefs mark a place in time where technology intersected with physiology to create something I recognize as the best. Singular. Unique. I'm sure it's the same with everything. There's a car, a book, a cat, a cup of coffee that marks the moment when creation fulfilled expectation. Of course, once you recognize that something is the best, an entire cascade of events follows. You become more sensitive to how few bests you've experienced in your life. You're forced to consider the possibility that some of the best may have come and gone and you miss them, like the best dinosaur, the best dodo bird, the best original Coke. At some point, you get the feeling that progress isn't linear. It's circular. The bests come and go, as do the worsts. The result is we're always living in a state of varying mediocrity, which is depressing. It's also probably why there's a bar on every corner in New York. And there's probably the best bar out there somewhere that you'll wander into, or maybe it existed in ancient Rome never to be seen again. As a historical footnote, Rabbi Akiva, one of the wisest men in history, one of the most powerful voices in the Talmud, was a bartender. Yeah, that could have been a very good bar to go into. The tension of wondering if this is the best or the worst of times leads to three compensating behaviors. Some people constantly search for the best whatever. This has led to the marketing of the $60,000 bottle of water, true, which has been said to have, and I quote, a distinct tantalizing flavor and softness to the palate that will impress even the biggest bottled water connoisseurs. Others are certain they're experiencing the equally rare worst of times. These people usually go into politics or advertising where they could scare the largest number of people possible. Proportionally, I would bet the largest group are those of us who despair that we will never know the best or worst of anything. The biggest problem with the best of times and the worst of times is that we're so unaccustomed to seeing them, we don't know what they look like and can appreciate them for what they are. I just finished a live broadcast of All in the Family and the Jeffersons in honor of Norman Lear. I played Harry Bentley, the Jefferson's neighbor. It's been estimated that 22 million people saw it the night it was broadcast and in subsequent rebroadcasts. By any measure, it has to be one of the most significant moments in my career. Growing up in Oak Cliff, television was the window to my world. 
in in our little world of three channels, four if you count the one that always played the Three Stooges, the most revolutionary view was into Norman Lear's backyard. All in the family, the Jeffersons, Good Times, Maud, and One Day at a Time comprised my formal education on race, sex, love, marriage, and the seemingly endless variations on human weakness. And I watched. And I laughed. And I laughed. Norman Lear changed my world as much as anything I learned in high school or a prayer I recited at Temple. And now I'm acting in his new version of One Day at a Time, and I'm asked to do the special live broadcast of the Jeffersons. This had to be the best of the best of times, almost worthy of poetry. But it wasn't. From the start, it was a study in terror. I got a mysterious message from Justina Machado, the star of One Day at a Time and one of the greatest actors ever to have graced our planet. It just said, did you get it? Get what? I wrote back. The offer. What offer? No, I didn't get an offer. To which Justina wrote back, oh, I'll just shut up. You never heard this from me. I went back into my black hole of every day. But after two hours, I couldn't take it anymore. I called my manager, Stephen Levy. Hello, Stephen chimed. Stephen, Stephen, this is weird. Did I just get an offer? Pause. No, no offer. What are you talking about? Justina just wrote me and said I was about to get an offer for something. News to me, but I know her agent. I'll call and ask around. Oh, Stephen, Stephen, wait. Yes? You have to be sneaky. I promised Justina I wouldn't tell anyone. Oh, I'll be subtle. They won't know what hit them. And don't worry, this is Hollywood. You haven't really told anyone. You're an actor. I'm your manager. It's not like we're people. It's like I'm an attorney or a priest or a psychiatrist and you're a murderer. You could tell me anything and it's strictly confidential. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen hung up and called back 15 minutes later. Okay, here's the scoop. I told them Justina told you, in confidence, that you were going to get some sort of offer. Well, Mr. T, you are! I think they're going to offer you a role on the live broadcast of All in the Family in Jefferson's. That would be fun, right? It starts next week. You wouldn't mind, would you? It's Donna Norman. Mind? Are you kidding? Sure, of course. It's an honor to be asked to honor Norman Lear. Of course. I I just thought the show was already in rehearsal. Why did they pick me? Who knows? Who cares? They love you. Call you back. Stephen hung up. Fifteen minutes later, he called again. It's set. The money isn't much, but it's fine, and this is for Norman. Of of course. I'm, I'm sure everything's good, and we start next week, right? Right. I'll tell him you're set. Uh, sure, Stephen. Wait, Stephen, wait. Yes? What am I playing? Oh, yes. What did they say? Uh, oh, Bentley. Harry Bentley on the Jeffersons, next door neighbor. You know, that'll be a hoot. Right. I couldn't remember who Harry Bentley was. I hung up and ran to the computer. I got pages of videos. Very funny. But there was a problem. Several problems. He was young. He had hair. And he was British. British! Why did they ask me to play this part? Sidebar. 
For the record, I have never done accents. Can't do them. My advisor in college said that if I wanted to work as an actor, I would have to do them, so I should start practicing now. I didn't. Instead, I figured I'd lie on my resume. I assumed no one would read my resume, so I could write anything I wanted for accents. Irish, Russian, Italian. Anything was better than leaving it blank. In the end, I chickened out on a real lie and listed I did four dialects, Texas, Dallas, Oak Cliff, and Standard American. And that has been good enough for the last 40 years. Until now. Now I had to be an Englishman. I broke out into an immediate flop sweat. And then I thought about shooting a live broadcast in 10 days with millions of people watching and my condition deteriorated into flop pneumonia. I turned to science to sound English. Observation. I watched Monty Python videos. They all sounded British. All I had to do was pick a python. So I picked John Cleese and Eric Idle. I recorded myself. I improved slightly. Now I sounded like Scrooge in a Lions Club production of A Christmas Carol. I resigned myself to the fact that I was no Meryl Streep. I went back and watched more of the original Bentley, Paul Benedict. Paul Benedict wasn't British either, and he is wonderful. I recorded myself using the camera on my computer. It looked more like a speech pathologist video of a patient with a deviated septum. I worked for hours. Eventually, I began to sound like Graham Kerr the Galloping Gourmet. That might have to be good enough. Every minute of every day, I saw the end of my career approaching. And I've witnessed it my whole life. People always take it a step too far and fall off the end of the world. The natural order is attrition. The first thing a man loses is his vision, then his hair, and finally his reputation. My manager said doing the Jeffersons would be a great credit to have even if the show were a disaster. Most people only remember the resume. I hoped he was right. I feared the flaw in his thinking was that resumes might be a thing of the past. Actor information is all online now, with video clips from what they call your reel. Active slates have replaced headshots for many actors. In an active slate, you pay someone with a digital camera to film you saying, Hi, I'm Stephen Tobolowsky, with different attitudes. Hi, I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. Hey, Stephen Tobolowsky here. Hello, <laughs> I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. <laughs> it's true. You see so much more personality in an active slate than you ever did in the old days with the picture and resume. The other advantage of having all of your actor information in the digital realm 
is you don't have boxes of pictures in your closet. I fabricated my first resume when I was at SMU. I had two seemingly contradictory problems. I had nothing to put on it, and a resume was only supposed to be one sheet of paper, which wasn't nearly enough space to write everything I was going to have to make up. I had to create the illusion that I had experience. My strategy was to list high school plays I had been in at made-up theaters. For example, Henry Drummond in Inherit the Wind at the Actors Playhouse of Cincinnati, or Talthibius in The Trojan Women at Diamond Jim's Dinner Theater, Minnesota. I added parts I worked on in acting class, learned a speech of Hamlet, recited it to Beth in an empty church, Hamlet went on the resume. Next came Macbeth. I learned two speeches, recited them to Beth in an empty Margot Jones Theater, Macbeth went on the resume. I did student films at SMU to fill out the spot on my resume for screen credits, which was hard to do since most human beings didn't have movie cameras back then. I played man walking across a soccer field in The Wednesday Problem and police detective Johnson with Beth as my partner, Officer Henley, in A Case of Rapture. I was paid gas money to be in a slasher film in East Texas called Keep My Grave Open. I played Robert, the stable boy who's seduced by a crazy woman and murdered with a samurai sword in the shower. We did an R and a GP-rated version of my death. The R-rated version showed the sword slashing my throat. GP just showed blood running down the drain. Of primary importance, this film was a real movie. I had to join SAG. In 1971, in Texas... (laughs) It cost $120 to get your SAG aftercard. Now you have to get a loan from a bank. Keep my grave open when on the resume. At the end of my sophomore year, I went to the Forestburg Summer Theater in upstate New York. I was only paid $10 a week, but that was enough for me to feel clean about calling it a professional job. And the credits came rolling in. Bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Algernon in The Importance of Being Earnest, Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie. I was doing so well I considered taking Macbeth off of my resume. I wasn't cast much my junior and senior years at school, but fortunately the local equity house, Theater 3, threw me a lifeline. They began to offer me all sorts of parts. Jesus in Godspell, Charlie Kotchapi in Pearly, the judge in Giradu's Electra. The resume spread to the highly frowned upon second page. I graduated and was awarded the Edith Renshaw Award for Outstanding Undergraduate in the Theater Department. It came with a $25 prize. Well, not really spending money. $25 credit at a bookstore. I bought Joseph Campbell's Masks of God trilogy for $24.50 and the Edith Renshaw Award went on the resume. And that was the best I had. All of it represented struggle against terrible odds, an enormous achievement for me, and meant absolutely nothing to anyone looking at it. Today, with the limitless space of the Internet, my list of credits could have included so many more parts that mean nothing to casting people. Man at a Bowling Alley in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Man Holding Clipboard in Meredith Monk's Paris, composer of original music for Bertha, Queen of Norway, and Yankee Sailor Man in a Corette commercial for Japan. 
Each of these roles meant a lot to me at the time, especially man holding a clipboard. After a year of graduate school at the University of Illinois, Beth and I came to Los Angeles in an attempt to make it big. And if that failed, at least to see the Pacific Ocean. That's when I got a call from a new old friend of mine, Tony Giovanetti. Tony was the technical director at the Forestburg Summer Theater. When I wasn't acting, I worked as Tony's assistant. He was the man who was with me when I opened the importance of being earnest without any pants. And when our cook tried to kill us by putting rat poison in the creamed onions. Tony was the man who witnessed me being possessed by a ghost during a Midsummer Night's Dream. Friendships born in time of war last a lifetime. Tony had a job for me. He was coming to Los Angeles with the Meredith Monk Dance Company, and he needed an assistant. It paid $500. For Beth and me, this was manna in the wilderness, and I didn't have to do much. I had to stand backstage and pull the levers for one like cue, and at the end of the show, pull the rubs to close and open the curtains for the company bows. This job also provided an unexpected benefit. It gave me a chance to go into the seldom-used area of my closet where I kept my work clothes. My flannel shirt, my blue jeans with the tear at the knee, my tough-as-nail work boots. Just putting these clothes on made me feel competent. The last time I wore my work clothes regularly was when I helped Tony backstage at Forestburg. I learned there was a sort of pride in not performing, but being there to support others who were. That same good feeling filled me when I met Meredith Monk. I saw the appreciation in her eyes. Her look said, I'm the artist, but he's the working man. The biggest thrill was I had the best seat in the house watching Meredith and company dance. Growing up in Oak Cliff, I never expected I would love modern dance and ballet. Freshman year in college, our floor mate Tommy Giraud invited me to his dance recital. It was one of the most breathtaking performances I have ever seen. And I felt the same rush of joy watching Meredith Monk and Ping Chong leap around the stage. Her choreography was a visual delight. The week of rehearsals at Royce Hall at UCLA went off without a hitch. The night of the show, there was a hitch. It was near the last dance of the evening. Meredith Monk's famous Paris duet with Ping Chong. In it, Meredith plays a French waiter with a big skirt and a large handlebar mustache. Ping Chong is a tourist sitting at an outdoor cafe. She takes his order. She serves him. They dance around the stage, leaping, turning, celebrating. During one turn, gravity intervened and Meredith Monk's mustache flew off. The audience started laughing. Meredith was not amused. She spun off stage to me. I was getting ready for my cue at the end of the show. I lost my mustache, she whispered. I know, it, it's right there. I laughed and pointed to what looked like a furball center stage. Ping Chong continued to dance around the stage, looking confused at Meredith talking to me in the wings. Get it, Meredith ordered. I will, I said. Don't worry. Get it now. Uh, but the show is still going on. I'll get it after I close the curtain. Meredith pointed at the mustache and commanded, Now! I said, get it now! Oh, okay, okay, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. So, wearing my blue plaid work shirt and jeans with clipboard in hand, I walked on stage, and the audience applauded.
It was the first time in my life I got applause on an entrance. Ping continued to dance around the stage while I picked up the mustache. The audience laughed again. A few cheered. I smiled and nodded to the crowd and carried the mustache off stage. I gave it to Meredith. She stuck it back on and danced out to meet Ping to the cheers of the audience and more applause. They finished the number. I closed the curtain and the audience gave the show a standing ovation. After the show, Tony came up to me in amazement. Wow. Yeah, I said. Didn't expect that. No, Tony, I said. You were in the show. I was. You got applause. I did. Is this the first show you've done in Los Angeles? I thought about it. Yes, Tony. This, this is my first performance in L.A. Tony laughed. First professional performance. Remember, you get paid $500. I think that's more than the dancers make. Man with a clipboard. You could put that on your resume. And I probably will, Tony. Man with a clipboard. Performed with Meredith Monk and Ping Chong in the West Coast premiere of Paris at Royce Hall. Yeah. I thought about it, but I didn't. Even though I'd only been in L.A. a short time, I already got the sense this is not a city that appreciates a good joke. Man holding a clipboard remains one of the most remarkable moments in my career, but you won't find it on any lists of my credits. The natural assumption is that the resume is the final resting place of all things that matter, but it's not. It all matters. I didn't even look on IMDb to see if my role on the Jeffersons has appeared there by magic. I just checked. It has. I don't keep a resume anymore, typed or digital, and I don't know when that happened. A couple of years ago, I called my agent. I said, David, I haven't updated my resume in a while. Should I send something to you? There was a pause at the other end of the line. Tobo, what are you talking about? My resume, David? You don't have a resume anymore. I don't. No, you don't need one. Everyone knows you. So, I've become a man without a resume? Yes, it's official. You probably have too many credits. Don't worry about it. Talk to you later. Thanks, David. I hung up the phone and tried to ponder the meaning of it all. It's true. I have too many credits, certainly more than a page, probably a little less than a Reader's Digest condensed novel. It's not a boast. It's a matter of science, and here's the physics of it. If you are an actor, and you are bald, and you manage to stay alive long enough, you will probably have too many credits. Losing your hair is the important part of the equation. Everybody needs a bald guy just to make George Clooney look better. 
When my hair started to fall out by the handful in graduate school, it was one of the blackest periods of my life. I was horribly depressed. Beth did everything she could to console me, but even love didn't help. My acting career had survived Joan Potter only to be done in by bad Tobolowsky genes. So file this away under the uncomfortable truth. Quite often, everything we know is wrong. I had no idea that my eventual baldness would be my elixir of everlasting showbiz life. When you are bald and you wear glasses, you will look the same for decades. It becomes your brand. I frequently think back to that time in Illinois and my rage and my tears. Such a waste of misery. We think all of our flights of self-hatred are free. That in the morning we'll be better and the people we love will be the same. But they're not. And neither are we. There is a cost. There is a physical cost when we tell ourselves that we're better off dead. Usually our immune systems listen. And there's a cost to a relationship, especially when you're a man. See, there was a lot of goofy talk in the 70s and 80s that women want vulnerable men. Not true. Women want confident men and someone who can open jars. Women don't mind if men cry as long as it's only once a decade and they cry with confidence. The most devastating is probably the spiritual cost of self-hatred. It coarsens our souls, enabling us to inflict even more damage in the future. I don't think it was a coincidence that after I started using Rogaine a few times, I moved on to cocaine. Just another manifestation of wishing I were someone else. The day I had to go to Sony for the first cast read-through of the Jeffersons, once again I was wishing to be somebody else, someone who could do an English accent. We were reading for our director, Jim Burroughs, executives from Sony, executives from ABC, and Norman Lear. Hey, no pressure. I have found the best way to deal with pressure is to focus on two words. Screw it. I threw my English accent out there. It was big. I had fun. I got a respectable amount of laughs from the audience. I was relieved when we were done. Jim Burroughs told us to take five while he talked to the execs. I figured I would take a little trip to the snack table to celebrate getting through this first reading. I was on my way to the box of Krispy Kremes when a young intern intercepted me. Uh, Mr. Tobolowsky, Norman Lear wants to speak with you. Pause. There are times in your life when you wished you were wearing adult diapers. The Bob Dylan Grateful Dead concert was one. This was another. Norman Lear was sitting on the Jefferson set. He saw me approaching, gestured for me to sit next to him. Norman tried to smile and patted me on the leg. Stephen, what would you think about having hair? 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 Oh, God, yes, Norman. I was dreaming about it last night. That's perfect. That's perfect. Bentley should have hair. Well, what kind of hair would you like, Stephen? Uh, Something that makes me look more like John Cleese or Eric Idle. Norman laughed. Well, we'll get to work on it. This was one of the greatest conversations I've ever had. So much information conveyed in so few words. First... 
I wasn't getting fired. Not yet. They would never go to the expense of getting a wig for someone that was on their way out the door. And even better, I would be in disguise if I blew it on the live broadcast. At rehearsal, Jim worked out where he wanted us on stage. Now, this was a unique situation. We were all doing scripts that were written decades ago and filmed decades ago. So there was nothing new, no rewrites. I imagine everyone had studied their scenes on YouTube and had an idea what we were supposed to do. We were getting ready to work on a scene that gave me pause when I saw the video of the original show. Bentley lies down on the floor while George Jefferson, played then by Sherman Hemsley, dances on his back. I showed Anne the scene. She made a face of horror. They're not going to do that, are they? She said. Well, I'm, I'm sure they are, baby. That Jamie Foxx is going to jump on your back? Uh, probably, yeah. Do they know about your broken neck and your broken ribs and your knee? Uh, probably not, baby. Jamie Foxx is a lot bigger than Sherman Hemsley. Yeah, yeah, he is. He probably weighs 200, 210, all muscle. Sherman Hemsley looks like he weighs... 65 pounds, all bones and feathers. I bet the original writers thought of this bit because Sherman was so tiny. I am serious, Stephen. You could die, said Anne. Right, right. Or end up a cripple. You have to tell Norman Lear. I will. I will, baby. I didn't. This was television. People rarely die on television shows. Uh, Okay, once on Deadwood. But that was the only time I could remember. The worst thing that usually happens is that you get fired. So I was going to man up and try to get through the week. We got to the back dancing moment. I laid down on the ground and Jim Burrow said, "Uh, let's stop for a second. Stephen, do you have any back problems? Yes, I said. Yes, Jim, of course I do. Everyone over 30 has back problems. Jim said, well, Let's proceed slowly and see what we can do. Jamie tentatively put his foot on my lower back and then started adding weight. Once he got to the bone, he jumped off. No, no, man, no. This is all squishy down there. I'm just going to go right through him. Uh, Jamie, try standing on my butt or thighs, I said. Through trial and mainly error, we found a place on my lower butt, upper thigh, where Jamie could dance without severing my spine. You all right down there? Jamie asked. I'm good. Uh, How does it look, Jim? I asked. I suspect at some point Jim Burroughs had one of his eyes replaced with a camera rangefinder. He tilted his head slightly and said, yes, that should work. After rehearsal, we took a break, and one of my favorite Sony executives came over and said, Hey, pretty good stuff there. Did it hurt? John, if it was funny, it didn't hurt, I said. The exec leaned in and confided, Stephen, it's no secret we go through a lot of names when we're putting this cast together. And every actor we wanted for Bentley was good, but they were too small. We needed someone big enough for Jamie to jump on. That's when we thought of you. So that's how I got the part on the Jeffersons. After rehearsal, I snuck over to the costume department. 
I asked them if they could do something to give me a little more protection without throwing off what Jamie was doing. They sewed hockey pads into my underwear. And the golden age of underwear just keeps getting better. There is a psychological advantage in having your film clips and credits floating out there in the electronic wasteland with thousands of other actors. It's easier to have the fantasy that someone is looking at your stuff. A big part of any acting career is delusion. It acts as the shield of invulnerability that enables you to get through those first precarious steps of typing up a resume and getting your pictures made and working on monologues for general auditions and the first meetings with agents without crumpling on the ground and sobbing. I have come to respect delusion. Delusion is the road trip where the gas is cheap and you're always first in line to see the pandas. Ed K. Martin, our acting teacher at the University of Illinois, told us that if we were serious about our careers— We had to either go to Los Angeles or New York. We had to have a resume and headshots, get into an acting class, get an agent, and get an answering service. Getting an answering service was a bit of advice I never heard before. Historical footnote. Back in the 1970s, there there were no portable phones, obviously. And there were no answering machines. Cassettes didn't even appear until the late 1970s. So if you didn't want to miss a phone call, you hired an answering service. Now, these were human beings, usually unemployed actresses, who sat in a room with banks of telephones taking calls. Doctors used them all the time. I remember when I was little, my dad took my brother and me to the baseball game. He'd have to get up several times to call his service to see if he had any emergencies. In Los Angeles, actors were the new doctors. Well, at least we played them on television. Beth and I were serious about our careers. We had our resumes printed and we got headshots. But we didn't have an agent. We didn't even have a phone book where we could look up an agent. But we knew if we left that space on our resumes for agent blank, we were cooked. So we made an executive decision. The agencies I heard of always use people's names, like William Morris Agency or Jeff Hunter Agency. So we used Beth's last name and wrote that we were represented by the Henley Agency, and we wrote down our home phone number. We got an answering service, as Ed recommended. They wanted to know who our agent was. I said, the Henley Agency. Oh, right, right, said the woman from the phone service. Yes, I've heard of them. Even though Beth and I went on very few auditions and only for free theater or student films, we never got any calls. The standard euphemism when you checked in on your answering service and no one called was, you're all clear. That was the positive spin they put on it. You're all clear. You're all clear became my daily dose of humiliation. 
It summed up our attempts to have a career in three little words. I became increasingly embarrassed that the answering service thought less of us because no one called. Then that the answering service would think that the Henley agency would drop us because we never got any auditions. And then I was afraid they would think the Henley agency might go out of business since they had clients that never worked. If the Henley agency went out of business, our cover would be blown. I convinced Beth that we had to start calling our answering service as agents from the Henley agency with news that one or the other of us had an audition. So we would call our answering service, <laughs> this is so sad, from pay phones at the 7-Eleven or lobby of a movie theater or from our friend's apartment with details of a mythical audition. Then later that evening, we would call into our service and get the message. I have to admit, I felt a small surge of hope when I got an audition from the Henley Agency. I modestly thanked the girl from the answering service. I took it in stride when she related that one of the Henley Agency interns would be running over in the morning with the script. A main hurdle to any career in the arts is humiliation. Not so much rejection. That's what I hear from younger actors. Rejection is an easy hurdle for delusion to overcome. You just say, something better will come along. It wasn't my time. This is out of my control. Humiliation kicks in when you think you have some control, and then you realize you don't. When you've just finished a scene, and you think you did great, and then you overhear the producers discussing how they plan on replacing you in future episodes. Or when you're called to the set and you're ready to go and you've learned your lines, you've practiced them in the hotel room, and then you find out in front of the cameras that they gave you an old version of the script and you know nothing. Or when you've learned the part and you could say it in your sleep, but suddenly in front of the audience, you can't remember anything. Now, the first time it happens to you, you make jokes about it. And then it happens again. Or you're working on a show and you forget your character's name. When you don't know who you are anymore, it's a given you're not who you used to be. Aging gracefully doesn't exist in show business. The best Hollywood has to offer are wax museums, and the slide is swift. You get cast in different roles. One moment you're playing the best friend, then you're playing the dad. Before you know it, you're playing Gramps. It's the circle of life. The way you work on a part changes. Earlier in my career, I could learn a part in a day. I could learn a part in a couple of hours. I did for the film Murder in the First. It was a surprise for everyone, especially me. I get a phone call from our director, Mark Rocco, one morning about 9.30. He said, Stephen, can you work today? We're shooting this movie. Oliver Stone was supposed to play the part, but he didn't show up. It's not a big part, maybe three scenes, but one of them shoots this afternoon. I said, sure, Mark. They sent over a script three hours later. Three hours, I'm in a movie trying to navigate lines with Oliver Stone in jokes like, well, I didn't come from Wall Street just to platoon with a bunch of lawyers to get guilty men out of prison. We had to cut out a lot of the Stone-centric jokes as we went along. Gone are the days. I can never trust that I know my lines anymore. And it began as something good and creative, working on films, especially television. There are always lots of changes to a script anyway. Lines change because locations change or scenes are cut, scenes are added. 
Parts are shaped to match the actor playing them, like the Oliver Stone jokes I inherited in Murder in the First. So as an actor, I would always question if what I was saying matched the scene and the situation. A lot of changes I made were good, but then it becomes harder and harder to stop the tide of mental drift. I began over-questioning, over-analyzing. And then one fine morning, I was headed to the studio to shoot a television show, and I realized in my car I had no idea what I was supposed to say. Terrifying. I had to change my method of working on a part, and that's scarier than going to a new dentist. Ed Harris told me he wrote scenes out. The physical act of writing helps to cement the words, so I tried that. That helped. I've tried to learn my lines like a piece of music, one measure at a time. That helps as well. However, all those methods only work when you're not under stress. The first time you're hit by panic, it is a shock. It's like an earthquake. You're overwhelmed by invisible but devastating seismic waves. And in an instant, you're in the grip of something bigger than yourself, bigger than any controls you thought you may have had. The first time I was hit by panic was opening night on Broadway for Mornings at 7 in 2002. Just like the Northridge quake, it hit without warning. We had been in previews for about three weeks. Everything was going beautifully. The show was wonderful. I was working with Julie Haggerty, a spectacular talent. And she's not just a great comic actress. She is an anytime, anyplace actress who can turn a seemingly insignificant moment into a great truth. The audience loved the show. They loved Julie and I. There was no reason to be afraid of anything. And then came opening night. 7 p.m., I felt fine. I did my pre-show routine, all good. 8 p.m., something happened with my breath. I was dizzy. I felt like I needed to sit down. 8.30 p.m., I started to get tunnel vision. Before our entrance in Act 1, I couldn't feel my legs. We got our cue. I didn't think I could walk on stage without falling down. I couldn't remember my lines. The numbness spread from my legs to my waist to my chest. All I could hear was the sound of my heart beating in my ears. We exited. I went over to Roy, our stage manager. I'm so sorry, I whispered. About what, asked Roy. The scene. Roy looked concerned. What about the scene? I couldn't remember my lines. Roy looked at me with confusion. You said your lines. I did. Yes, all of them. Did I get laughs? Roy looked concerned. Yes, the same laughs I usually get. The same. But I didn't hear them. I didn't hear a thing. Stephen, are you nervous? I, I think I may be having a panic attack, Roy. Why? Opening night, all the critics, I guess. I don't know. This has never happened to me before. Roy laughed and leaned in confidentially. Well, you don't have to worry about the critics. They're not here. They're not? No. All the major critics have already seen the show. They came last week. We never tell the actors because... Roy nodded toward me, 
Some actors react unfavorably to the news. Oh, my God. They've already come? Yes, come and gone. Did they like us? Loved us. Roy patted me on the shoulder. So relax. Enjoy. Stephen, I suspect we're in a hit. As wonderful as Roy's news was, I was still shocked by my automatic rollover and die response. Even after I found out I had nothing to worry about, it took me quite a while to feel like myself. Since that night, I've been blessedly panic-free, even when I had open-heart surgery. But one of the things I learned growing up near the woods and growing up down by the creek is that nature is a repeat offender. The spider's web always works, and Anne and I always end up going to the same restaurants. Opening night on Broadway was a calling card. Ever since then, I've been on the lookout for the return of the terror. I felt my only protection was preparation, building a routine, a routine that allowed no time to be blindsided. From the moment I got my part on the Jeffersons, I was on guard. Everything about this job was unique. To protect myself, I felt like I had to beat the specialness out of it. First, we had a short rehearsal time so I had to find ways to rehearse more. Stanislavski recommends working on a part at home doing light chores, and whenever there's a mental blip on a line, the actor needs to work on the logical underpinning some more. I did my opening scene cleaning the rabbit cage. Hello, I'm Harry Bentley. Do you live in the building? I went over it a hundred times. The rabbit cage was spotless. And then for some reason, I slipped and said, Hello, I'm Harry Bailey. (gasps) No, wrong. Start again, pull weeds. When I went to work, I tried to inoculate myself to the stress of the live broadcast by adding unfamiliar elements as soon as I could. For example, I would rehearse on set during breaks. I rehearsed with the real props. I wore costume pieces when they were available. I wore my wig as soon and as often as possible. Any of these little things could become flying debris under stress. Doing a live broadcast is difficult. Ordinarily, actors have time to get dressed and make up before a scene. In a live broadcast, you only have the time of the commercial break to get from point A to point B. There's no allowance for a broken shoelace. In spite of the physical challenges, we didn't have much time slotted for actual rehearsal. Jim Burroughs never likes to over-rehearse the actors. He wants the camera to catch spontaneity. We had five days from our first read-through on Thursday until the national live telecast the following Wednesday. Five partial days. Because Jim also had to rehearse all in the family. We did our first run-through on day two. We had our first audience on day three. The real show had to be ready and filmed on day four as a backup in case there were any disasters that occurred on the final live national broadcast on day five. Then it would be over and ready for the resume. Along the way, Jim gave a few notes, very few. The only note I got was, Can you be more British? There was an awkward silence. Jim looked at me and smiled and said, well, try. The nightmare hit me on day three, Monday night, 
our first audience. For the audience, it was the real thing. For us, it was just a dress rehearsal with the added benefit of finding out where the laughs were. Before my first entrance, I was waiting for my cue when for no reason every line went out of my head, even my name. But I was on guard for the terror. I kept my script right by the door where I entered, and I quickly looked up my first line, check, looked up my name, Harry Bentley, check, the second AD gave me my cue, I entered, and I got applause, applause, like my entrance with Meredith Monk, it was the second time in my career I got applause on my entrance, and it threw me. My timing became an unidentified flying object. I fought for every word. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. And then came time to introduce myself. I just had to say, hello, I'm Harry Bentley. I opened my mouth and the line vanished. I said, hello, I'm Harry. Ah, Harry. My partner in the scene, Jack K. Harry, looked at me with her don't tell me you forgot your name, fool, look. I knew my name started with a B, so I said, Harry Benson. <gasps> Wrong name! But at least it was a name from another show from 30 years ago. I was in the ballpark. Irredeemable. Horrible. I thought I could make up ground with Jamie jumping on my back. At this point, I felt like I deserved the punishment. The Monday show ended. Yeah, all I got were hugs and compliments. People seemed to ignore the fact I didn't know my name. Jim came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, it all looked pretty good. Maybe you were a little nervous out there. You think, I said. Hopefully the real shows tomorrow and Wednesday will be better. And they were. Creation fulfilled expectation. The show was wonderful. Not because of more preparation or prayer. Not because of more focus or desire. It was luck. Luck. That's why even if people doubt there's a heaven or a hell, everyone knows there's a Las Vegas. The uncomfortable truth is that a successful acting career comes down to luck. That should be the first thing on my resume. At the top, right after my name and before my first credit. He's always been lucky. We left stage 23 at Sony. The show was done. The terror had been beaten back again. Because it was a live broadcast, it was only 7.30 in the evening. It was the first sunlight I had seen in a week, and the warmth on my back made me remarkably happy. Anne and I walked over to a little party over by the commissary in the same courtyard where I shot a scene from Silicon Valley the year before. I had a small alcoholic beverage in honor of completion of another challenge. The sun began to set behind the sound stages. I sat with Norman, gave him a kiss on the cheek. I told Jim a ridiculous story about my car, and then Ann and I vanished into the dusk to return to the warmth of hearth and home. We pulled out of the parking garage and asked me if I was okay to drive. I said yes. I could see and hear again as we navigated to the on-ramp of the 405 freeway and that river of a million red taillights. I remembered the first rule of the road, and it's a hard rule to remember. 
but the best of times and the worst of times. Always depends on the traffic. That was The Resume, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, uh, in the near future slash recent past, uh, we have launched a YouTube channel that people can subscribe to if they want to get the video versions of some of your best stories. Where can people find that? Yeah, and video versions filmed in front of a live audience. And Indeed. This would, Indeed. Be, this would be at YouTube.com slash Tobofiles, T-O-B-O-F-I-L-E-S, the Russian spelling. <laughs> That's YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or leave a review in whatever app you listen to. You could also share about it on your social media. That would really help us out a lot. And of course, you can find every episode of the show at TobolowskiFiles.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a whole new set of stories next week. Adios. Adios.